Cade Mila Falta. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. Hello everybody and welcome to the Letter from Ireland show. We're now actually on series 4, episode 9. Time is flying. I hope you're well wherever you are in the world today and ready for another great episode of our Letter from Ireland show. I love having guests visit our studio and in today's show we have a very special guest to introduce you to listeners. She is Jane McGarvey. Now Jane is an Irish genealogist of 40 years. I know she started very young and she is based in Ireland and assists our Green Room members in their Irish ancestry search. And she also runs her own private business at janemcgarvey.com. In the show, Jane discusses with Mike her experiences of being an Irish genealogist, and she tells us what spurred her into genealogy as a very young girl. I was really interested to discover that. And then they both go on to explore three signs that show us we are making progress towards becoming an all-rounded Irish family history researcher. Well, if three signs could break down those brick walls, I'm all ears. So listen out for those three signs, listeners, and you'll also make some surprising discoveries along the way and learn a bit about your own research techniques. Before we get started, though, remember, you will find all the links mentioned in today's show in the show notes at a letter from Ireland.com forward slash 409. And I'll mention that again later. But now it's over to Mike and Jane. Right. Jane McGarvey, you are very welcome. Hi, Mike. It's great to be here. Yeah. And you traveled all the way down from Belfast just yesterday. And we had the pleasure of your company yesterday as well uh, to Cork, which is really across the island of Ireland, which I think is very appropriate, given that you are a genealogist who actually specializes in genealogy across the island of Ireland, as opposed to just north or just south. Would that be about right? That's correct, Mike. I cover all of Ireland in my research. So yesterday I hopped the early train from Belfast down to Dublin, across Dublin, and then on to the train. A lucky thing, yeah. (laughs) Lucky to arrive in Cork, that is. (laughs) A lovely, easy-do journey. No driving required. Ah, good. Good for you. And we're absolutely delighted to get you, I guess, for the first time onto our Letter from Ireland podcast. And it took a while, like, (laughs) up to this point. Uh, But I'm really kind of really interested to kind of, I suppose, participate in this conversation, see where it goes to an extent, because I stand to learn an awful lot as well. And what we're going to cover in this podcast is not just a little bit about yourself, Jane, and your own background, but also we've put a framework on things. And you'd like to emphasize uh, three signs you're making progress as an Irish family history researcher. Now, that's kind of interesting. So we have three signs we're going to go through, and I'm sure that's very of a lot of interest to our listeners, many of whom are members of The Green Room, Ancestry.com, MyHeritage, very interested in their own Irish family history research, and are different levels, if you like, of uh, perplexity, complexity, uh, 
finished, perhaps, as far as I'm concerned. The family history is bound and actually delivered to all their uh, descendants. But we'll see as we go along. But before we get into that, Jane, uh, we'd like to, I'd like to actually just uh, find out a little bit more about yourself to share with the readers, if that's okay. It is, Mike. Okay. So question number one is, how did you get into genealogy in the first place? Because my family wouldn't answer a single question. Okay. My father's attitude was, they're dead. And on my mother's side of the family was, how dare you be cheeky? Okay. But what age are you roughly at that time? I was in my teens. That is quite young, isn't it? It was. But it was the only way I could get an answer. But what scratched the, you know, the curiosity in the first place to want to ask the questions? Sheer lack of knowledge. The fact that I think I saw my family knowing things that I didn't know, I didn't understand, I didn't see where from. Both my grandfathers had died before I was born. My paternal grandmother died when, when I was quite young at seven. And my maternal grandmother wouldn't talk about anything that was about older than about a year ago. So we can take it that you're into a challenge. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was the cheeky little madam who wouldn't be told no. And from that point in your teens until now, essentially, yeah. you're after d- developing into a professional genealogist full time. I know you work directly with your own clients as well as with us here in the green room. And I, I guess kind of one of the questions I love to ask people who are into this, because, you know, you've been seeing so much at this point. But do you actually have kind of a very particular discovery or surprise you came across along the way that you're happy I to share? I think the biggest one was the loss of a client. And that may sound funny. Go on. But um, I had been searching professionally for a short while. And uh, another genealogist sent along a potential client who had been searching for her husband's family for about 20 years and constantly meeting brick walls and had run out of budget. Okay. But the other genealogist knew I had done some research on the particular family name and suggested, well, he would pass Mary along in the hope that there might be something that I had already done might provide a clue at something very, very, very cost effective. All right. I read Mary's email and went, oh, around to my files. Was your husband born <coughs> on such and such a date and his parents? And did he live at this address in the 1950s? Oh, my God. It sounds like Canada. you're clairvoyant, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Her husband, Mike, was my second cousin once removed that I, in fact, was searching for. I had a profile of a man in BC in Canada sitting on my desk that I had been lifting in and out of the file drawer and going, will I contact this man on the off chance he Uh. might just be the same person? And it was. And how did that end up in the eye of the newly acquired client? Well, the newly acquired cousin. Cousin client, (laughs) yes. I was able to supply with the information he had been desperately searching for, for 20 plus years. We're still in contact, although he's now very elderly. 
and uh, we've shared a lot of stuff. I've been able to send photographs of his grandfather um, across to him, which he didn't have. That is... And follow a lot of the details forward for him. Um, it's, just, it's just been fantastic. I, I have the feeling that you have versions of that story right along the way as well with different people and different clients and different times as well. Well... That is quite Irish though, isn't it? That it, sort of kind of... It is. I've, I've found that at several times. Um, I have two or three clients that further down the research road have turned out to be distant relatives. Some of them quite distant. Um, I've one lady I've been working with for quite a number of years. She's a very experienced researcher. So most of my work is um, fetch documents and look at small areas of research where she cannot access the records. Yeah. But other than that, she does all her own research. She asked me, would I spend a little bit of time looking at one particular line that she was a little bit stuck on? And I looked at that and I went and I then compared that to my own family tree and found the ancestor there. <laughs> so it's probably... Ten, cousin number two. Probably cousin 10, you know, 10 generations oh, listen, out. Just... You know, and goodness knows how many removed. But then we were also able to confirm it by DNA. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. And actually that, that leads me to kind of an interesting question. Because, you know, if I was to do my calculations, right, if you started this in your teens and where you are now, that's at least 10 years of experience. That's right. Yep. Um, <laughs> 20, 21 plus VAT. 21 plus, very good. Yeah, exactly. Do not, ask, do not ask the percentage of VAT. So the question I have for you, though, is in that time to where we are now, what do you see as kind of the biggest, biggest kind of definition or the biggest change with regards what's available to people now? Oh, availability of records is the biggest change. Okay. When I started, it was gravestones. As in go to the gravestones. As in go to the headstone, walk the graveyard, go to land registry, look at maps, go to ordnance survey, um, spend lots of time in the Lindenhall Library and the newspaper library, turning old newspapers page by page, no indexing. Well, of course, that was the strength in uh, what you were offering as well, was the fact that you had access to those and plus you had an ability to navigate all this stuff. Whereas, let's face it, if somebody was offline in Australia uh, looking to contact or figure out something, you know, you were a godsend, so to speak, able to kind of go in and find that stuff. Yes, I, uh, it, very, it was very different back then. Now, I wasn't, back then I wasn't researching professionally. Yeah. Um, I have to say I was certainly helping people. Yes. Um, but it was very much on a case of, yes, I'll give you as much help as I can, but I'm not doing this professionally. It, it really wasn't a career um, option. Okay. Back then, there wouldn't have been the work or the wide interest. So it was really the online access to records, I guess, well, from our point of view as well anyway, that blew everything up in terms of people wanting to be involved. It's made it accessible to everybody. Yeah, yeah. Back when I started, really, it was the prerogative of retired people and people who had deep pockets who could hire a researcher. Yep. Because the records were so difficult to get. And to reach the next level without indexing was quite often a matter of weeks. 
weeks spent pouring through Townland indexes. Townland indexes, oh my God. Stop. And guess, guessing or methodically working parish after parish after parish. Now, can I just stop you there? Because I have a kind of, I think that leads very nicely into the framework we're just about to discuss. Because take take your own experience, as you say there, it took somebody with a fair bit of metal or somebody who actually had a professional ambition to plow and have access to plow through all that stuff you're talking about there, Jane. But of course, as you say, nowadays and for maybe the last kind of, I don't know, three to ten years, the increasing availability of those records online has turned an awful lot of people into kind of enthusiasts at the very least, right up to kind of uh, semi-professional family history researchers. And that's mm. what we're going to look at now, especially in the Irish context. Because, you know, we, we talked about this particular model and we're going to go through it uh, step by step. And it's going to be all about how you might actually move the three signs that you're moving from being that sort of enthusiast at the beginning right through to being the sort of person who actually asks the right questions at the right time of the right people in the right place to get the best answers and therefore become much more accomplished Irish family history researchers. So will we give that a go now? That sounds good, Mike. So let's have a look at this framework. The three signs you are making progress as an Irish family history researcher. Now, by way of introduction, of course, the, the reason we met uh, yourself, Jane, and actually what really wants to work with you is because we really want to help people inside the green room become better Irish family history researchers. And we felt that you could off- offer an awful lot to this process and nudging and helping people along the way. So as we were talking through this yesterday, we we're kind of, I suppose, very excited to uncover a particular framework that we're going to go through now. So these three signs you're making progress as an Irish family history researcher. Well, you know, I know we started off by talking about where people typically start off when they come across family history research in the first place. And would you like to say a little bit about that? Well, quite often, Mike, people start becoming interested in the Irish culture. The culture, okay. The culture, the heritage, the background. They maybe know a little bit of facts from family tracings, um, family tellings, family stories, how the family came to leave Ireland and end up in what country. Sometimes they don't have that knowledge. It's just the cultural background that there is something Irish in the background. And we see that a lot, Jane, by the way, as well, with the letter and so on. In other words, people just feel a connection and it's been passed down maybe through a line or it's just how they're brought up and the sort of stories and the sort of music and so on they're exposed to. It does, Mike. You get a lot of people are, and they're very happy there and they love the culture, they love the stories, they love the songs, the background and then they start to become a little bit more curious. Right. And want to expand that a little bit. Mm. Sometimes they want to expand that an awful lot. When you say expand, what do you mean by that? Expand the knowledge. Okay. You're starting to begin exploring who your relatives were who came out of Ireland, why your relatives came out of Ireland. So you're interested very much in, I, I suppose you're starting into the family tree in kind of a more specific way and understanding how far back your folks went and where they came from. Yes, genealogy has become very, very popular. And there's almost, um, if I said a, a, 
are not specific. That how far back can you get? Oh, I can go back 10 generations. I can go back 12. I can go back to 1752. But it's so much more than just the names and yeah. dates. Now, I want to go through that more detail. I know we're going to go through that in each one of the signs that you're making progress. So l- let me just kind of uh, reassert this. So what we're saying is, let's let's give it a box. Let's say when somebody typically starts off with this kind of tickle, this interest, this scratch that needs to be itched uh, of their Irishness, let's call them the culturalist. So they're ready to start off. They might join Ancestry. They might kind of sign up for the Letter from Ireland, whatever it might be at that point in time. Now, if that's at one side of the scale and they want to move towards something over, let's say, months or years, what's at the other side? How would you describe somebody who has actually, I suppose, accomplished somebody who actually has made the discoveries and started to connect all the dots? Well, I think at the far end of the of the um, balance, you have the, the, the experienced family history researcher a or, histor- or a historian. Okay, so a family history researcher. We, we, let's call it that. As the, so two sides. On one side, you've got the culturalist, the enthusiast. And then somehow, some a lot of those people want to progress over time towards becoming more accomplished family history researchers. How would somebody know if they're accomplished, if you like, as a family history research, how would you look at somebody and say, oh, that person knows their stuff or that person is really on top of it? Well, you'll see that coming through quite a few stages, Mike. The f- The first sign is you'll see that somebody's actually prepared to edit their tree. Okay. I'd like to just kind of pause it there just a little bit because I just want to kind of get a little bit kind of, I, I'm, I'm curious about this because in one sense, I suppose services like Ancestry have given us the impression, and sorry to pick on new Ancestry.com, that all you need to sign up, start a tree, and just start going merrily collecting bits of branches from other people's tree, and lo and behold, you have a history and a genealogy, and so on. It's, you know, people are kind of, kind of led in with that impression. Yes. And, of course, I think what you're going at here, you're starting to become a lot more, you're, you're inferring, well, actually, it's a bit more serious than that, if you really want to get to kind of both the truth and the story in harmony, so to speak. And if you see the family history research, so on the, on the positive side of that person, they, we're going to go through some of those things. But do you come across other people then? And I, I do want to explore this a little bit because on the one side of our scale with regards to culture, somebody starting off, it's lovely just immersing yourself in your Irishness and so on. But there's a slightly negative side to that as well, which I know that we've come across, let's say, in people joining the green room a little too soon along the journey. And, you know, you can, you can tell me if I may be being unfair when I say this, but you do get some people that I characterize as, uh, dare I say it out loud, genealogical fly tippers. So in other words, they just have a whole bundle of information and they throw it out there into a forum and say, can anybody help me with this? Yeah. Yes, you're correct, Mike. There, yeah. there, there is a bunch of people um, who, through lack of knowledge, yeah, um, it's not a deliberate trait. It's, it's often they know what they know what's been passed down in the family, uh, what they have picked up from sites like Ancestry, yeah. and they haven't stopped to explore how that information came about. What is authentic? What is correct? 
or what is a fantasy family fairy tale? Oh my gosh. And you know, this is this is part of the issue because from Ireland, which where we're sitting at the moment, and I guess where we've always lived, um, you can kind of pick up certain fantasies very, very quickly because they just don't make any sense whatsoever based upon, I suppose, our local kind of knowledge and so on. But of course, it's so difficult when you're the other side of the world, kind of understanding some obvious things when you make a bit of inquiry that, you know, it's quite unlikely that that person from County Antrim kind of met and married somebody from County Cork and then they had their first child up in Galway. Now, I know I'm being a bit kind of extreme here in the mid 1800s and so on. But, you know, it, it seems to me that, you know, part of the thing about if you're a culturalist and you're, you're, you're reveling in it and you're quite happy to kind of have the Irish connection, that's one thing. But if you really want to make progress, there is an element of needing to get serious about it, isn't there? There is, Mike, yes. Yeah. There are a lot of pedigrees and genealogies that were completed back in the early 1900s through to the mid-1900s. They were unsourced. So as they were printed, people they were accepted as fact. Now, some are true. Okay. Some are very, very good. Right. Some are in CD incredibly accurate but some are flights of fancy okay okay now now we're gonna we're gonna be talking about this in just a little bit more detail so we're talking about let, let's just remind ourselves folks again we're talking about a scale here where you're starting off as this idea of the culturalist with somebody lots of exposure to irishness perhaps a dark side to that as well where you know you're kind of there might be too many flights of fancy in there but then on the other side of where you're going to, the accomplished family history researcher, you know, that sounds like it's all good and positive as well. But I think we've discussed as well that can be a bit of a dark side to some of the people who spend 12 hours a day online doing the records and appear to be very accomplished family history researchers. Do you want to expand a little bit more on that? Ooh, that's a difficult one. Yeah. Have a life. <laughs> oh i like that have another life anyway have, a, have, a, have another life um, you're not finished your you present know, one yet <laughs> me and me included i i can be guilty of, of guilty of that yeah yeah um only too easily yeah working particularly working in the field and also wanting to research my own yeah. family history yeah. yes sometimes a day um can get too long and sometimes there can be just too many records and too many point. possibilities and it can become less about who the people were and more about names now this is really really interesting to me because and i know we've talked about this quite a lot in the past but you know you, you do come across people and they are meticulous and wonderfully brilliant at actually having all the dates, having all the facts, having all the correct records lined up. But there seems to be no context whatsoever. There seems to be no depth, no richness, if that makes sense. And sometimes, of course, it's just about one particular line, which they kind of have, they dived into 100%. But, you know, that's li their, their knowledge, if you like, yeah. is just limited to that. I think part of that is... Um, I used to it used to be a standing joke in our household. I kept an old pedigree given to me by a client as my bedside reading material when I couldn't sleep. A begot B, B begot the one, two, three, four, and five, and you never got down halfway down the first page of her story. 
Well, that's a very, very useful piece of pedigree in that case. Worked brilliantly for another reason. Do you know, Jane, as, as, so let's just kind of rephrase this, okay, a little bit. So as, as the listeners want to advance and to get signs that they're becoming better, more rounded, I think is kind of a good word to introduce in here, uh, family history researchers, let's dive in now into maybe kind of what, we, what you figure are three of the main signs that you're actually starting on your journey or maybe progressing on your journey from being a culturalist to being a rounded family yeah. history researcher. So what's the first sign? The first sign, I would say, Mike, has been prepared to edit your family tree and cite your sources. Okay, well, this this feels like kind of a comment on those trees on Ancestry.com just about to come up. Yes, there are a lot of trees. Some of them are, again, like the old pedigree, printed pedigrees. Some are incredibly accurate and some are flights of fancy and everything in between. But they're unsourced. There's no knowledge of where the information came from. Okay, well... Let me kind of just challenge that a little bit. So on the one hand, you might actually, obviously, it's for argument's sake, have a marriage. And I can then see that I can connect that marriage to a very specific record. And if I'm on Ancestry.com, I can literally click a button and say, no, that's connected to that event. And that's what we mean by uh, citing a source. Would that be correct? Well, citing the source is simply giving the address of where you found the piece of documentary evidence. Okay, but should you get rid of everything on your tree that you cannot attach a piece of documentary evidence to? No. Tell me more. Because some is good family information. And if you have a piece of evidence that is oral family history, right. then you cite that as oral family history. Who told you, when they told you, where they told you, who they were. So if Great Aunt Mary may have been in her 80s, but if she's sound of mind and sprite of spirit, then that's what you want to record. Great. So she said that in this particular way at this particular time, and it's cited. Correct. You have a source, cited. So it's not as black and white as actually literally just kind of, you know, either it's connected to an official record or it's not. It's much, much wider and richer than that. It is, Mike. It's it's the whole, um, put very simply, a source, citing your sources is simply recording the address. Now, I know we're going to move on to another step in just a few minutes, um, a sign, I should say, and we'll talk a little bit about that with the guards research and so on. But let me kind of ask you, because when people join the green room first, for example, if they're on Ancestry, just as an example, we ask them to attach their tree. And we do have a look at it when they ask their questions and so on. And I notice, and I'm not a professional genealogist, but I notice that it's as likely to find somebody who's actually quite an accomplished researcher, as much as somebody just starting, to have whole sections of their tree that don't haven't cited sources, that actually um, perhaps are kind of maybe even proven not to be true anymore. If you know, you know, as soon as you question, they kind of fall down, if that makes sense. So what do you recommend people like that who've kind of gathered all these barnacles, if you like, on the bottom of their boat over time on their ancestry tree? What do you recommend they do? Should they go back and look for sources or just get rid of whatever? Or how should they proceed? Go back and look for sources. And if they can't find them? Question them. Try and prove, could it be incorrect? 
is it feasible? I always say if you go back to, is it feasible? Is it likely? Is it probable? Okay. Does it belong? And if it doesn't belong, what you do with it? Detach it. And is it easy enough to detach something? Yes. We've worked through that in the workshop where we looked at Pam Carroll's tree and we merged a number of duplicate records and we detached one or two others that were proven not to belong to where they were. So for our Green Room members, just to say, we'll put a link below this particular podcast to where you can actually find out how to do this. All right, so let's just say, and I know there's a lot more than just that, Jane, and, you know, this is just scratching the surface, but that's the first of the signs you wanted to share, that people are actually advancing from being kind of that enthusiast culturalist towards becoming more rounded family history researcher, and is being prepared to edit your family tree and cite sources. Correct, Mike. Okay, so once you've done that, folks, and give it a go, and we're there to help as well, just remember that. But now I'm very, very interested to move on and see how it maybe kind of move up along the scale. So we've done that and we're relatively happy that we're leaving in our family tree what we want to leave in there. We're making good progress on citing the sources. Now, what do you think is another sign that you're making progress as an Irish family history researcher? Knowledge of the dash. The dash. The dash. Not the dot, but the dash. Correct. The old saying, birth certificates show they were born death certificates show they died but it's the dash in between that shows how they really lived (laughs) oh that's really good so if you see something as we always do uh, 1906 dash 1956 you have two facts there but you have a lot of richness in between in the dash that's where the real interest and the, the curiosity and the information lies and what I think is, is much more roundness rather than just birth, married, died. Okay, so not just the events, births of kids, marriage and so on, but something more. So what, 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 what are you inferring there? What else might there be apart from the events that are recorded? Who the person was. And how do we who, know that? Who was your ancestor? What did they do for a job? Jobs, okay. Um, how did they live? Did they have hobbies? Did they play cricket? Did they play hurling? Were they a member of the GAA? Were they an orange man? Were they Catholic? Were they Protestant? Uh, what were they? Who you know? What did they do? How did they live? What did they eat? Where did they live? What was their house like? Do you know what strikes me, Jane? As you start talking about this, there's a very important word that we're including in this, which is Irish family history researcher and really you're talking there about the history which is about the richness of their existence yes as opposed to just the researched dates yes it's much more about the family the family and its context how the and what was happening in the local uh, culture around them what was happening in the wider world ireland didn't survive in a bubble well, let me ask you this question as well, Jane, because I, I, I get that. I mean, you obviously get that as well. It's just the pursuit of knowing more about your your individual family members. It's just a wonderful feeling, okay? But let's say you just have a few hard-nosed people out there. They say, well, how is that going to help me get more dates? Is it something that can help them? Absolutely, Mike. 
an awful lot of that information, knowledge about your family, what your family did as a living. For um, Just for an example, the linen industry evolved, as did many other industries. They evolved from cottage industries into industrial industries. Um, technology changed even then. New farming implements um, became available, were designed, new methods of doing all sorts of even making shoes, medicine, right across the board. Yeah. Technology changed. Yeah. And as technology changed and farming practices changed, where our ancestors lived had to change. The economy changed with it. The yeah. economy changed with it. New roads were built. New bridges were built. Some old churches were knocked down. More were built. Where they were moved to all makes a difference. I'll just give you a couple of examples I've come across anyway in the past because there, it's, there are a couple of intriguing examples which are obvious when you hear them. Uh, the first one is the introduction of the bicycle. And suddenly you had couples capable of actually meeting each other at a further distance than they might have done in the past, just for example. And, you know, you literally started to see that kind of widening of the gene pool, maybe not as much as today and across continents. But, you know, the bicycle actually counted an awful lot towards that particular freedom. That's one thing. Another thing is actually um, the introduction of the credit union system in Ireland in the 1920s, uh, down here at least. And that gave people the means for the first time to actually put a headstone on their grave. Because up to that point, it was just literally kind of, for the most part, stone markers. But now suddenly it became something that became more of an aspiration to actually make sure that you kind of looked after your family members or yourself as the, the end approached and you had enough money put aside to do just that. And people are often wonder, like, you know, my grandfather or great-grandfather died in 1916. I can't find the gravestone in County Cork or whatever. And quite frankly, that's because there wasn't one. There was a marker of some sort, yes. But really, if you start to look post kind of maybe 1930, you will find grave markers. And that's attached to the actual introduction of the credit union system, to the best of my knowledge. And they're just kind of two examples of kind of the wider context and effect it actually would have had on people and their lives and the events around them. Oh, absolutely, Mike. They're very good examples of changes. The same with um, put a bridge and you can cross a river. Oh, yes. So where... As the crow flies, the next village may only have been a half a mile, but to get there could have been seven or eight miles. Yeah. So new context, new dances, new introductories, new careers that took one family member out of the home, out of the village, and many miles away, they brought home a new bit of blood to yep. be introduced around uh, absolutely. to be introduced around the family connection. Ma, I've seen we'll, wanted to meet. <laughs> yes, we'll 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 marry him or her or, or him or her off to somebody in the family. What are they bringing with them? <laughs> exactly. Introductions went further. Distances went further. More options were available. The train. Um, the first train from Belfast to Lisburn was put in about 1830s. And that opened a vast array of a network. As you say, much bigger of a distance. The Fantastic. same with the, 
but the bicycles <clears throat> that continue to expand. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, you just you reminded me of one there as well, Jane. Just kind of saying how back in the eighteen hundreds, I mean, where you were in County Down, which is so close to Scotland, there were kind of X number of boats going back and forward every day. You could literally kind of almost go over in the morning, come back in the evening, and go over that night again. You know, when people talk about migrating between countries or you know between Scotland and let's say Ireland, it was that simple for some people, and it was that um, that attainable. You know, and understanding those sorts of things relative to where people were living really just gives you that richness of understanding the events, which is, I think, what you're saying there. It did indeed. Well, the early days of Presbyterianism, when it was illegal here, yeah, um, the boat used to go from Donaghadee over to Port Patrick every Sunday morning. And roughly what distance was that? About 18 miles. Okay, so there we're talking about from the island of Ireland over to Scotland. Correct. About 18 miles. Every morning. And what happened? Well, every Sunday sun- morning. Certainly, certain, well, the boat went daily, but certainly the parishioners used to hop aboard on a Sunday morning, go over, have the baptisms, marriages, confirmations, whatever, and back again on Sunday evening. Isn't that amazing, you know? So that was their local parish, so to speak, the water in between. Correct. Fantastic. So, Jane, I know we could speak about these for a long, long time. But there we have just so far in kind of moving yourself along the line to a rounded family, Irish family history researcher. Number one, we were saying one of the signs was being prepared to edit your family tree and cite sources. And just there, and I love the way you put this, having a better knowledge of the dash. Now, let's move on to kind of a, a final sign that I know you want to share this morning with our listeners. So what's the actual last sign you'd actually like to share? Organising your research. That's a big one, isn't it? It's a very big one. And it's one Eileen Shea brought up fairly recently. In the green room, yeah. Within the green room in a great topic. And we've had a great lot of input from a lot of members with a lot of different ways of how to organise your research. But surely there's one perfect way? No. Surely there's two perfect ways? No. Dozens of ways. What is best is what works best for your mind and your hands. But isn't that that's so difficult to get your head around? When let's face it, you're you're faced with an avalanche of information and possibilities, probabilities, whatever the heck stuff you can't even pronounce yourself. Not mind, write it down. So how you know? I I do understand that you will eventually find something that works best for yourself. But how do you how do you start, Jane? What's the best way to start organising your research? Well, that very much depends on you. If you're an individual who likes spreadsheets and likes tables, then use those. But if the very thought of using an Excel spreadsheet horrifies you, terrifies you, you're not going to use it. Okay. You will only pay lip. It'll be something that'll be a horrible task to do. So don't do it. Use a mind map instead. As in a mind map connects ideas and people and things, yeah? Yes. Use sticky notes. And you have you have some tools, I guess, inside uh, Ancestry and so on. You know, you have your boxes and you have your various kind of uh, attached notes and so on. Yes, there's, there's notes there, there's comments there. So you can print stuff out or you can print to file and hold them in a, a family tree of documents you can use binders with 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 coloured sticky labels. 
It's very, it's very personal. And what have you personally evolved into at this point? I'm very much a mind map person. I like the mind map. I'm very experienced at using Excel and Microsoft Word. I've used it in business gotcha. for years. But your brain uh, works in such a way that the mind map jumps out at you more. Would that be right? Absolutely. Okay. I've recently switched to Good Notes, thanks to yourself. Which is on the iPad, on the in this iPad. case an Apple iPad. And uh, that allows me, um, very much as a visual person, yeah, to, I can print and I can scribble over my documents again, but it's much neater than, well not so much neater, it's more contained because it's digital, right. rather than the pile and piles and piles and cupboards and piles of notebooks that currently clutter my cupboards and my and my um, outside office, which is just piles of books. I, I remember, Jane, when um, I guess kind of the early days when I used to be involved in um, time and organizational management and all that sort of stuff for my sins. Um, one of the rules was if you kind of had to retrieve a file, a piece of information you needed for your research, number one, it should be within reach wherever you're sitting. Um, so there might be a filing cabinet right beside you. And number two, you should be able to retrieve it while you're on a call to somebody. So you can literally kind of, you have such a good system, you could just put your hand on exactly what you want and pull it out there and then. Because, of course, one of the problems of research and so on is the fact that it's easy enough to put stuff in there, but getting stuff back out again can be the problem. But what you're kind of saying here now is that's really a function of just what you prefer to do yourself, and you will eventually find something that suits you the best. Would that be right? It is, Mike, yes. You may be a, you may love Gantt charts. Some of our project managers will be used to working with a Gantt chart, and they'll set their, their timelines and things. Their and, timelines, yeah. and they'll work with their spreadsheets. Yeah, and they'll be in seventh heaven. Okay, okay. But for other people who don't work that way, that would just be a sheer nightmare. Yeah, and therefore they'll not do it. Yeah, or they'll only do it reluctantly. Yes, yes. If it's not going to work for you. Find another method. Yes. If sticky notes or lots and lots of different colored notebooks, whether you use electronic notebooks nowadays, as in good notes, yeah, or you use manual notes, is, is entirely down to what you will use to record. Do you know what I find as well is, um, you know, I know we've talked quite a lot about this, and I just quite rightly say it's down to the individuals and we put the research wheel into the green room. So as people make the way around the modules, ideally I find myself, for example, taking notes on what is essentially pencil and paper, but just related to the module, you know? So it might be a particular person. As I go around, I just like to scribble and I like to get stuff out of my brain, then look at it afterwards and see how it fits into things. And most of it is just scratch work. Most of it is not going to be used, but some of it will very much be put into, for example, a tree on Ancestry, or it'll be put aside, as you say, onto a spreadsheet or a table of some sort. Um, but it does strike me, though, that we will actually refer in the links below to Inside the Green, which is just where we pull together those different research approaches, because it's a really important point here. If we're putting it forward as a step, as a sign that you're advancing as a rounded researcher, let's make sure that we actually put some more emphasis on this in the Green Room. We will start to share more of those approaches. So looking forward to that. So we have, we have three signs there, Jane. We have prepared to edit and cite 
family, your editor family tree and site sources. And again, we linked to training on that. Having a knowledge of the dash, which I find hugely intriguing because that is about the stories in between the, the dates, so to speak. And again, we will start to kind of, I think, kind of emphasize that more for people in their research. And finally, then another sign, organizing your research. And again, we put a link into that. So is, is that it? Is it as simple as that? If you kind of start to kind of get stuck into those three areas, do you think that, have you seen that moving people forward? I have. I've seen that moving people from typing in a name and seeing where it takes you. Yep. Uh, through to planning research. So let me ask a question a different way. If anybody was to leave out any of those, would it hold them up? So if they weren't going to edit or cite resources, uh, cite sources, if they weren't going to develop a knowledge of the dash, if they weren't going to organize their research, is it going to halt their progress? Not necessarily halt it, but it may slow it down. Yeah. And there will probably be brick walls that would be very hard to get past. Right. And sometimes that brick wall is knowing more of the content of the person. Were they educated? Were they not educated? You won't find, for example, an uneducated labourer in Irish leases. It's very, very rare. Right, right. But somebody who is educated, who maybe has, has, has a larger farming background, may well turn up in a lease. Right. And understanding that you are going to spend time looking for something that just isn't there is an important step. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it's a case of looking what survives, where is it, when was it, where do I find it? And John Grenham is one of the, the most useful tools we use in the box to That's begin johngrenham.com. Correct. A set of tools there, yeah. Well, listen, Jane, I, I, I'm absolutely delighted that rather than just, although it would have been perfectly pleasant, just having a general conversation with everything in your past and so on, that we actually asked you to kind of share this framework, which I think is going to be hugely useful to people who are already, let's face it, kind of because you're listening to this, uh, interested and in pursuing Irish family history research. But it's very, very useful to understand where you are yourself if you're listening to this and understanding maybe hopefully getting an idea or a hint or a clue as to what you might need to spend some more time on, folks, if you want to actually progress towards becoming more rounded Irish family history researcher, or perhaps you're quite comfortable and happy to remain a generalist, you know, a culturalist, as we call it. But again, going back and being prepared to edit your family tree and cite sources, having a knowledge of the dash and organizing your research. Sounds obvious on one level, but it's just that reminder when you say it, it really kind of struck me at least. And I can certainly go back to my family tree and start editing it. I can certainly remember now to, okay, ask more questions about the dash. And likewise, perhaps just pursue an even better way of organizing my own research. So Jane, I really appreciate that. Now, Jane, where can we actually um, find out a bit more about you and your work? Well, my website is www. Uh, sorry, janemcgarvey.com. That's www. Hard to say all that, but it's j a y n e m c. Correct. G a r v e y. dot com. And Jane actually looks after the island of Ireland, not just the north of Ireland. And also, we must say, 
Jane is also a resident genealogist in the green room. So you can also, if you're in the green room already, you can actually engage directly with Jane and ask questions there. Uh, and indeed, work with some of her excellent reports she's already produced for us, uh, pointers and training. And believe me, if you're in the green room, you're going to bump into her constantly in any case. So Jane, thank you so much for spending the time today and look forward to, actually I look forward to getting you back on the podcast again in the future. Yes, indeed, Mike. It'll be great fun again. Thanks a lot. Jane, you're most welcome to come back to the studio at any time. And we're delighted that you popped in today to share your expertise with us on today's show. When we were preparing for the interview today, I was delighted to hear Jane say, and she said I could quote her, that the model offered in the green room is unique among the many genealogy sites that are out there. Now, that's high praise indeed. But, you know, it's thanks to Jane and, of course, her depth of knowledge and clarity around the records. This is pivotal, too, to the uniqueness of the green room. As Mike mentioned, you're going to find Jane at www.janemcgarvey.com. And of course, you'll also find her in the green room and we'll let a link below in the show notes to Jane's address. That brings us on to the end of today's show. A warm thanks to you listeners for your company and also for those listening from the green room and also all our readers on the letter from Ireland. Anybody wondering about their Irish ancestors and maybe wanting to start on that road to becoming uh, an Irish family history researcher? You'll find all the links from today's show in the show notes at a letter from Ireland.com forward slash four zero nine. And so everybody, Sloan, thanks for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again next time on the Letter from Ireland show. If you've enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we'd like to invite you to check out our special membership area, The Green Room. You hear us mention it a lot during the show. And you can find full details of The Green Room at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Our Green Room is the essential resource for anybody at any stage in researching their Irish heritage because it's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and really connect the pieces in your Irish ancestry puzzle. In the green room, you get access to online genealogists, extensive research tools, quick win training, as well as member-only access to johngrenham.com and a very supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice. The Green Room is the perfect place to be for anybody starting or continuing their Irish ancestry search. So why don't you come and join us there at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. That's it for me, but I'll be back next time with another installment of the Letter from Ireland show. And I really look forward to chatting to you then. Slán Gafol, Karina. <laughs>